Net Physical Theatre Mechikananga FM Podcasting App Free in Google Play. Today we go full-blown singlessing, monism. The circle dot was used by the Pythagoreans and later Greeks to represent the first metaphysical being, the monad or the absolute. Monism is the view that attributes oneness are singleness, Greek, to it concept, for instance, existence. Various kinds of monism can be distinguished. Priority monism states that all existing things go back to a source that is distinct from them, for instance, in the old Platonism everything is derived from the one. In this view only one thing is ontologically basic or a prior to everything else. Existence monism posits that, strictly speaking, there exists only a single thing, for instance, the universe, which can only be artificially and arbitrarily divided into many things. Substance monism, staff monism, asserts that a variety of existing things can be explained in terms of a single reality or a substance. Substance monism posits that only one kind of stuff, for instance, matter or mind, exists, although many things may be made out of this stuff. Definitions. There are two sorts of definitions for monism. The white definition. A philosophy is monistic if it postulates unity of origin of all things. All existing things returned to a source that is distinct from them. The restricted definition. This requires not only unity of origin but also unity of substance and essence. Although the term monism is derived from Western philosophy to typify positions in the mind-body problem, it has also been used to typify religious traditions. In modern Hinduism, the term absolute monism is being used for Edward of Enter. History. The term monism was introduced in the 18th century by Christian von Wolff, in his work Logic, 1728, to designate types of philosophical thought in which the attempt was made to eliminate the dichotomy of body and mind and explain all phenomena by one unifying principle, or as manifestations of a single substance. The mind-body problem in philosophy examines the relationships between mind and matter, and in particular the relationships between consciousness and the brain. The problem was addressed by René Descartes in the 17th century, resulting in Cartesian dualism, and by pre-Aristotelian philosophies, in Avicennian philosophy, and in early Eurasian and more specifically Indian traditions. It was later also applied to the theory of absolute identity set forth by Hegel and Schelling. Thereafter the term was more broadly used for any theory postulating a unifying principle. The important thesis dualism also was broadened to include pluralism. According to Aronson, as a result of this extended use, the term is systematically ambiguous. According to Jonathan Schaeffer, monism lost popularity due to the emergence of analytical philosophy in the early 20th century, which revolted against the Neo-Hegeans. Kalernik and Ira, who were strong proponents of positivism, ridiculed the whole question of incoherent mysticism. The mind-body problem has re-emerged in social psychology and related fields, with the interest in mind-body interaction and the rejection of Cartesian mind-body dualism in the identity thesis, a modern form of monism. Monism is also still relevant to the philosophy of mind, where various positions are defended. Philosophy. Types. A diagram with neutral monism compared to Cartesian dualism, physicalism and idealism. Different types of monism include 
substance monism, the view that the apparent plurality of substances is due to different states or appearances of the single substance attributed monism, the view that whatever the number of substances, there of a single ultimate kind partial monism, within a given realm of being, however many there may be, there is only one substance existence monism, the view that there is only one concrete object token, the one, a remolnad, Priority monism, the whole is prior to its parts are the world has parts, but the parts are dependent fragments of an integrated whole lightless the metaphysical theater anchor FM podcast hosting mobile app, Google Play Store free. Property monism, the view that all properties are of a single type, for instance, only physical properties exist, genus monism, the doctrine that there is a highest category, for instance, being views contrasting with monism are metaphysical dualism, which asserts that there are two ultimately irreconcilable substances or realities such as good and evil, for example, manichaeism, metaphysical pluralism, which asserts three or more fundamental substances or realities. Metaphysical nihilism negates any of the above categories, substances, properties, concrete objects, etc. Monism in modern philosophy of mind can be divided into three broad categories. Idealist, mentalistic monism, which holds that only mind or spirit exists. Neutral monism, which holds that one sort of thing fundamentally exists, to which both the mental and the physical can be reduced. Material monism, also called physicalism and materialism, which holds that the material world is primary, and consciousness arises through the interaction with the material world. A eliminative materialism, according to which everything is physical and mental things do not exist. We reach to physicalism, according to which mental things do exist and are a kind of physical thing. Certain positions do not fit easily into the above categories, such as functionalism, anomalous monism, and reflexive monism. Moreover, they do not define the meaning of real. But certainly you know what's real, don't you? Monistic philosophers, pre-Socratic, while the lack of information makes it difficult in some cases to be sure of the details, the following pre-philosophy is thought in monistic terms. Ailes, water, Anaximander. AP Rhyme, meaning the undefined infinite. Reality is some, one thing, but we cannot know what. And Zacrosimus, Heraclitus, change, symbolized by fire, in that everything is in constant flux. Parmenides argued that being or reality is an unloving perfect sphere, unchanging, undivided. Post-Socrates, the Pythagoreans such as Apollonius of Tiana centered the cosmologies on the monad or one. Stoics taught that there is only one substance, identified as God. Middle Platonism under such works as those by Mnis taught that the universe emanates from the monad or one. Neobot Platonism is monistic. Plotinus taught that there was an ineffable transcendent God, the one of which subsequent realities were emanations. From the one emanates the divine mind, Ness, the cosmic soul, Psyche, and the world, Cosmos. Vibration podcast, metaphysical frequency modulation anchor theater. This is JOHNTVRZ.com, and I am the originator of the metaphysical theater music in your head.
call back you are way too deep into the life-giving depth of mind here on the metaphysical theatre Anchor FM podcast free on Google Play. Philosophy of Space and Time Philosophy of Space and Time is the branch of philosophy concerned with the issues surrounding the ontology, epistemology, and character of space and time. While such ideas have been central to philosophy from its inception, the philosophy of space and time was both an inspiration for an essential aspect of early analytic philosophy. The subject focuses on a number of basic issues, including whether time and space exist independently of the mind, whether they exist independently of one another, not accounts for time's apparently directional flow, whether times other than the present moment exist, and questions about the nature of identity, particularly the nature of identity over time. Ancient and Medieval Views the earliest recorded Western philosophy of time was expounded by the ancient Egyptian thinker at Hadj, c. 2, 6, 5, or 2, 6, or, or BC, who said, Follow your desires as long as you live, and do not perform more than is ordered, do not lessen the time of follow and desire, for the wasting of time is an abomination to the spirit. 11th maxim of Taitwadi Vedas, the earliest texts on Indian philosophy and Hindu philosophy, dating back to the late 2nd millennium BC, describe ancient Hindu cosmology, in which the universe goes through repeated cycles of creation, destruction, and rebirth, with each cycle lasting for a million, three hundred and twenty thousand years. Ancient Greek philosophers, including Parmenides and Heraclitus, wrote essays on the nature of time. Incas regarded space and time as a single concept, named Pekka, Kudwuchira, Pekka, Enora, Pekka. Plato, in the Timus, identified time with the period of motion of the heavenly bodies, and spaces that in which things come to be. Aristotle, in Book the Fourth of his Physics, defined time as the number of changes with respect to before and after, and the place of an object as the innermost motionless boundary of that which surrounds it. In Book 11 of St. Augustine's Confessions, he ruminates on the nature of time, asking, What then is time? If no one asks me, I know. If I wish to explain it to one that asks, I know not. He goes on to comment on the difficulty of thinking about time, pointing out the inaccuracy of common speech. For but few things are there of which we speak properly. Of most things we speak improperly, still the things intended are understood. But Augustine presented the first philosophical argument for the reality of creation, against Aristotle, in the context of his discussion of time, saying that knowledge of time depends on the knowledge of the movement of things, and therefore time cannot be where or nor creatures to measure its passing. In contrast to ancient Greek philosophers who believed that the universe had an infinite past with no beginning, medieval philosophers and theologians developed the concept of the universe having a finite past with a beginning, now known as temporal finitism. The Christian philosopher Jean Philippornis presented early arguments, adopted by later Christian philosophers and theologians of the forum argument from the impossibility of the existence of an actual infinite, which states, an actual infinite cannot exist. An infinite temporal regress of events is an actual infinite. An infinite temporal regress of events cannot exist. In the early 11th century, the Muslim physicist Ibn al-Hatham, Alison Arlazan, discussed space perception and its epistemological implications in his book of Optics, 1021. He also rejected Aristotle's definition of Tepor, physics the fourth, 
by way of geometric demonstrations and defined places are mathematical spatial extension. His experimental proof of the intra or mission model of vision led to changes in the understanding of the visual perception space, contrary to the previous emission theory of vision supported by Euclid and Ptolemy. In tying the visual perception space to prior bodily experience, Ellison unequivocally rejected the intuitiveness of spatial perception and, therefore, the autonomy of vision. Without tangible notions of distance and size for correlation, sight can tell us next to nothing about such things. Realism and anti-realism A tradition at realist position in ontology is that time and space of existence apart from the human mind. Idealists, by contrast, deny or doubt the existence of objects independent of the mind. Some anti-realists, whose ontological position is that objects outside the mind do exist, nevertheless doubt the independent existence of time and space. In 1781, Immanuel Kant published The Critique of Pure Reason, one of the most influential works in the history of the philosophy of space and time. He describes time as an a priori notion that, together or with other a priori notions such as space, allows us to comprehend sense experience. Kant denies that either space or time are substance, entities in themselves, or learned by experience. He holds, rather, that both are elements of a systematic framework we use to structure our experience. Spatial measurements are used to quantify how far apart objects are, and temporal measurements are used to quantitatively compare the interval between, or duration of, events. Although space and time are held to be transcendentally ideal in this sense, they are also empirically real that is, not mere illusions. Idealist writers, such as J.M.E. McTaggart in The Unreality of Time, have argued that time is an illusion, see also the flow of time, below. The writers discussed here are for the most part realists in this regard. For instance, Gottfried Leibniz held that his menops existed, at least independently of the mind of the observer. Absolutism and relationalism Leibniz and Newton. The great debate between defining notions of space and time as real objects themselves, absolute, or mere orderings upon actual objects, relational, began between physicists Isaac Newton, via his spokesman, Samuel Clark, and Gottfried Leibniz in the papers of the Leibniz-Clark correspondence. Arguing against the absolutist position, Leibniz offers a number of thought experiments with the purpose of showing that there is contradiction in assuming the existence of facts such as absolute location and velocity. These arguments trade heavily on two principles central to his philosophy, the principle of sufficient reason and the identity of indiscernibles. The principle of sufficient reason holds that for every fact, there is a reason that is sufficient to explain what and why it is the way it is and not otherwise. The identity of indiscernibles states that if there is no way of telling two entities apart, then they are one and the same thing. The example Leibniz uses involves two proposed universes situated in absolute space. The only discernible difference between them is that the latter is positioned five feet to the left of the first. The example is only possible if such a thing as absolute space exists. Such a situation, however, is not possible, according to Leibniz, for if it were, a universe's position in absolute space would have no sufficient reason, as it might very well have been anywhere else. 
Therefore, it contradicts the principle of sufficient reason, and there could exist two distinct universes that were in always indiscernible, thus contradicting the identity of indiscernibles. Standing out in Clark's and Newton's response to Leibniz's argument is the bucket argument. Water in a bucket, hung from a rope and set to spin, will start with a flat surface. As the water begins to spin in a bucket, the surface of the water will become concave. If the bucket is tucked, the water will continue to spin, and while the spin continues, the surface will remain concave. The concave surface is apparently not the result of the interaction of the bucket and the water, since the surface is flat when a bucket first starts to spin, it becomes concave as the water starts to spin, and it remains concave as the bucket starts. In this response, Clark argues for the necessity of the existence of absolute space to account for a phenomena like rotation and acceleration that cannot be accounted for on a purely relationalist account. Clark argues that since the curvature of the water occurs in the rotating bucket as well as in the stationary bucket containing spinning water, it could only be explained by stating that the water is rotating in relation to the presence of some third being absolute space. Leibniz describes a space that exists solely as a relation between objects, and which has no existence apart from the existence of those objects. Motion exists solely as a relation between those objects. Newtonian space provided the absolute frame of reference within which objects can have motion. In Newton's system, the frame of reference exists independently of the objects contained within it. These objects can be described as moving in relation to space itself. For many centuries, the evidence of a concave water surface held authority. Mark. Another important figure in this debate is 19th-century physicist Ernst Mach. While he did not deny the existence of phenomena like that seen in the back of argument, he still denied the absolutist conclusion by offering a different answer as to what the bucket was rotating in relation to. The fixed stars. Mach suggested that thought experiments like the bucket argument are problematic. If we were to imagine a universe that only contains a bucket, on Newton's account, this bucket could be set to spin relative to absolute space, and the water it contained would for any characteristic concave surface. But in the absence of anything else in the universe, it would be difficult to confirm that the bucket was indeed spinning. It seems equally possible that the surface of the water in the bucket would remain flat. Mac argued that, in effect, the water experiment in an otherwise empty universe would remain flat. But if another object were introduced into this universe, perhaps a distant star, there would now be something relative to which the bucket could be seen as rotating. The water inside the bucket could possibly have a slight curve. To account for the curve that we observe, an increase in the number of objects in the universe also increases the curvature in the water. Mach argued that the momentum of an object, whether angular or linear, exists as a result of the sum of the effects of other objects in the universe, Mach's principle. Einstein. Albert Einstein proposed that the laws of physics should be based on a principle of relativity. This principle holds that the rules of physics must be the same for all observers, regardless of the frame of reference that is used, and that light propagates at the same speed in all reference frames. This theory was motivated by Maxwell's equations, which show that electromagnetic waves propagate in a vacuum of the speed of light. However, Maxwell's equations give no indication what this speed is relative to. 
Prior to Einstein, it was thought that this speed was relative to a fixed median, called the Illuminifer theory. In contrast, the theory of special relativity postulates that light propagates at the speed of light in all inertial frames, and examines the implications of this postulate. All attempts to measure any speed relative to this ether failed, which can be seen as a confirmation of Einstein's postulate that light propagates at the same speed in all reference frames. Special relativity is a formalization of the principle of relativity that does not contain a privileged inertial frame of reference, such as the luminiferous ether or absolute space, from which Einstein inferred that no such frame exists. Einstein generalized relativity to frames of reference that were non-inertial. He achieved this by positing the equivalence principle, which states that the force felt by an observer in a given gravitational field and that felt by an observer in an accelerating frame of reference are indistinguishable. This led to the conclusion that the mass of an object warps the geometry of the space-time surrounding it, as described in Einstein's field equations. In classical physics, an inertial reference frame is one in which an object that experiences no forces does not accelerate. In general relativity, an inertial frame of reference is one that is following a geodesic of spacetime. An object that moves against a geodesic experiences a force. An object in free fall does not experience a force, because it is following a geodesic. An object standing on the Earth however, will experience a force, as it is being held against the geodesic by the surface of the planet. In light of this, the bucket of water rotating in empty space will experience a force, because it rotates with respect to the geodesic. The water will become concave, not because it is rotating with respect to the distant stars, but because it is rotating with respect to the geodesic. Einstein partially advocates Mach's principle in the distant stars explain inertia, because they provide the gravitational field against which acceleration and inertia occur. But contrary to Leibniz's account, this warped space-time is as integral a part of an object as a other defining characteristics, such as volume and mass. If one holds, contrary to idealist beliefs, that objects exist independently of the mind, it seems that relativistics commits them to also hold that space and temporality have exactly the same type of independent existence. Conventionalism the position of conventionalism states that there is no effect of the matter as to the geometry of space and time, but that it is decided by convention. The first proponent of such view, Henry Pankett, reacting to the creation of the new non-Euclidean geometry, argued that which geometry applied to a space was decided by convention, since different geometries will describe a set of objects equally well, based on considerations from his sphere world. This view was developed and updated to include considerations from relativistic physics by Hans Reichenbach. Reichenbach's conventionalism, applying to space and time, focuses around the idea of coordinative definition. Coordinative definition has two major features. The first has to do with coordinating units of length with certain physical objects. This is motivated by the fact that we can never directly apprehend length. Instead we must choose some physical object, say the Standard and Territory Bureau of International Deposit Messrs, International Bureau of Weights and Measures, or the wavelength of cadmium to stand in as our unit of length. The second feature deals with separated objects. 
although we can, presumably, directly test the equality of length of two measuring rods when they are next to one another, we cannot find out as much for two rods distant from one another. Even supposing that two rods, whenever brought near to one another, are seen to be equal in length, we are not justified in stating that they are always equal in length. This impossibility undermines our ability to decide the equality of length of two distant objects. Sameness of length, to the contrary, must be said by definition. Such a use of coordinative definition is, in effect, on Reichenbach's conventionalism, in the general theory of relativity where light is assumed that is not discovered to mark out equal distances in equal times. After this setting of coordinative definition, however, the geometry of spacetime is set, as in the absolutism-slash-relationalism debate, contemporary philosophy is still in disagreement as to the correctness of the conventionalist doctrine, structure of spacetime, building from a mix of insights from the historical debates of absolutism and conventionalism as well as reflecting on the import of the technical apparatus of the general theory of relativity, details as to the structure of space-time have made up a large proportion of discussion within the philosophy of space and time, as well as the philosophy of physics. The following is a short list of topics. Relativity of simultaneity. According to special relativity each point in the universe can have a different set of events that compose its present instant. This has been used in the Rutledge-Potram argument to demonstrate that relativity predicts a black universe in which events are fixed in four dimensions, invariance versus covariance, bringing to bear the lessons of the absolutism-slash-relationalism debate with the powerful mathematical tools invented in the 19th and 20th century, Michael Friedman draws a distinction between invariance upon mathematical transformation and covariance upon transformation. Invariance, or symmetry, applies to objects, that is the symmetry group of a space-time theory designates what features of objects are invariant, or absolute, and which are dynamical, or variable. Covariance applies to formulations of theories, that is the covariance group designates in which range of coordinate systems the laws of physics hold. This distinction can be illustrated by revisiting Leibniz's thought experiment, in which the universe is shifted over 5 feet. In this example the position of an object is seen not to be a property of that object, that is location is not invariant. Similarly, the covariance group for a classical mechanics would be any coordinate systems that are obtained from one another by shifts in position as well as other translations allowed by a Galilean transformation. In the classical case, the invariance, or symmetry, group and the covariance group coincide, but, interestingly enough, they part ways in relativistic physics. The symmetry group of the general theory of relativity includes all different terrible transformations, that is, all properties of an object are dynamical, in other words there are no absolute objects. The formulations of the general theory of relativity, unlike those of classical mechanics, do not share a standard, that is, there is no single formulation paired with transformations. As such the covariance group of the general theory of relativity is just the covariance group of every theory. Historical frameworks. A further application of the immortal mathematical methods, in league with the idea of invariance and covariance groups, is to try to interpret historical views of space and time in modern mathematical language. 
In these translations, a theory of space and time is seen as a manifold paired with vector spaces, the more vector spaces the more facts there are about objects in the theory. The historical development of space-time theories is generally seen to start from a position where many facts about objects are incorporated in the theory, and as history progresses, more and more structure is removed. For example, Aristotelian space and time has both absolute position and special places, such as the center of the cosmos, and the circumference. Newtonian space and time has absolute position and is Galilean invariant, but does not have special positions. Alls. With the general theory of relativity, the traditional debate between absolutism and relationalism has been shifted to whether a space-time is a substance, since the general theory of relativity largely rules out the existence of, for instance, absolute positions. One powerful argument against space-time substantivalism offered by John Ehrman is known as the whole argument. This is a technical mathematical argument that can be paraphrased as follows. Define a function D as the identity function over all elements over the manifold N, excepting a small neighborhood H belonging to M over HD comes to differ from identity by a smoother function. With use of this function D, we can construct two mathematical models, where the second is generated by applying D to proper elements of the first, such that the two models are identical prior to the time T equals zero, where T is a time function created by a foliation space time, but diff after T equals zero. These considerations show that, since substantivalism allows the construction holds, that the universe must, on that view, being deterministic. Which, Ehrman argues, is a case against substantivalism, as the case between determinism or indeterminism should be a question of physics, not of our commitment to substantivalism. Direction Time the problem of the direction time arises directly from two contradictory facts. Firstly, the fundamental physical laws are time reversal invariant. If a cinematographic film were taken of any process described by means of the aforementioned laws and then played backwards, it would still portray a physically possible process. Secondly, our experience of time at the microscopic level is not time reversal invariant. Glasses can fall and break, but shards of glass cannot reassemble and fly up onto tables. We have memories of the past, and none of the future. We feel we can't change the past but can influence the future. Causation Solution One solution to this problem takes a metaphysical view, in which the direction time follows from an asymmetry of causation. We know more about the past, because the elements of the past are causes for the effect that is our perception. We feel we can't affect the past and can affect the future, because we can't affect the past and can affect the future. There are two main objections to this view. First is the problem of distinguishing the cause from the effect in a non-arbitrary way. The use of causation in constructing a temporal ordering could easily become circular. The second problem with this view is its explanatory power. While the causation account, if successful, may account for a sometime asymmetric phenomena like perception and action, it does not account for many others. However, asymmetry of causation can be observed in a non-arbitrary way which is not metaphysical in the case of a human hand dropping a cup of water which smashes into fragments on a hard floor, spilling the liquid. In this order, 
the causes of the resultant pattern of cup fragments and water spill is easily attributable in terms of the trajectory of the cup, irregularities in its structural angle of its impact on the flora, etc. However, applying the same event in reverse, it is difficult to explain why the various pieces of the cup should fly up into the human hand and reassemble precisely into the shape of a cup, or why the water should position itself entirely within the cup. The causes of the resultant structure and shape of the cup and the encapsulation of the water by the hand within the cup are not easily attributable, as neither hand nor flora can achieve such formations of the cup or water. This asymmetry is perceivable on account of two features. I, the relationship between the agent capacities of the human hand, that is, what it is and is not capable of and what it is for, and non-animal agency, that is, what flies are and are not capable of and what they are for, and E, that the pieces of cup came to possess exactly the nature and number of those of a cup before the form. In short, such asymmetry is attributable to the relationship between temporal direction on the one hand and the implications of form and functional capacity on the other. The application of these ideas of form and functional capacity only dictates temporal direction in relation to complex scenarios involving specific, non-metaphysical agency which is not merely dependent on human perception of time. However, this last observation in itself is not sufficient to invalidate the implications of the example for the progressive nature of time in general. Through a more dynamic solution, the second major family of solutions to this problem, and by far the one that has generated the most literature, finds the existence of the direction of time as relating to the nature of thermodynamics. The answer from classical thermodynamics states that while our basic physical theory is, in fact, time reversal symmetric, thermodynamics is not. In particular, the second law of thermodynamics states that the net entropy of a closed system never decreases, and this explains why we often see glass breaking, but not coming back together. But in statistical mechanics things become more complicated. On one hand, statistical mechanics is far superior to classical thermodynamics, in that thermodynamic behavior, such as glass breaking, can be explained by the fundamental laws of physics paired with a statistical postulate. But statistical mechanics, unlike classical thermodynamics, is time reversal symmetric. The second law of thermodynamics, as it arises in statistical mechanics, merely states that it is overwhelmingly likely that net entropy will increase, but it is not an absolute law. Current thermodynamic solutions to the problem of the direction of time aim to find some further effect or feature of the laws of nature to account for this discrepancy. Laws solution. A third type of solution to the problem of the direction of time, although much less represented, argues that the laws are not time reversal symmetric. For example, certain processes in quantum mechanics relating to the weak nuclear force are not time reversible, keeping in mind that when dealing with quantum mechanics time reversibility comprises a more complex definition. But this type of solution is insufficient because 1. The time asymmetric phenomena in quantum mechanics are too few to account for the uniformity of a cross carpet time asymmetry and 2. It relies on the assumption that quantum mechanics is the final or correct description of physical processes. One recent proponent of the law's solution is Tim Wobblin who argues that the fundamental laws of physics are laws of temporal evolution, see Wobblin 2007. However, elsewhere Morgan argues, 
The passage of time is an intrinsic asymmetry in the temporal structure of the world. It is the asymmetry that grounds the distinction between sequences that runs from past to future and sequences which run from future to past. Thus it is arguably difficult to assess whether a modeling is suggesting that the direction of time is a consequence of the laws or is itself primitive. Flow of time. The problem of the flow of time, as it has been treated in analytic philosophy, or as it's beginning to a paper written by J.M.E. McTaggart. In this paper McTaggart proposes two temporal series. The first series, which means to account for our intuitions about temporal becoming, or the moving now, is called the A-series. The A-series orders events according to their being in the past, present or future, simpliciter and in comparison to each other. The V-series eliminates all reference to the present, and the associated temporal modalities of past and future, and orders all events by the temporal relations earlier than and later than. McTaggart, in his paper The Unreality of Time, argues that time is unreal since A, the A-series is inconsistent and B, the B-series alone cannot account for the nature of time as the A-series describes an essential feature of it. Building from this framework, two camps of solution have been offered. The first, the A-theorist solution, takes becoming as the central feature of time, and tries to construct the B-series from the A-series by offering an account of how B-facts come to be out of the facts. The second camp, the B-theorist solution, takes as decisive McTaggart's arguments against the A-series and tries to construct the A-series out of the B-series, for example, by temporal indexicals, dualities. Quantum field theory models have shown that it is possible for theories in two different space-time backgrounds, like AD-CFTRT duality, to be equivalent. Presentism and Eternalism. According to presentism, time is an ordering of various realities. At a certain time some things exist and others do not. This is the only reality we can deal with and we cannot, for example, say that Homer exists because at the present time he does not. An eternalist, on the other hand, holds that time is a dimension reality on a par with the three spatial dimensions, and hence that all things past, present, and future can be said to be just as real as things in the present. According to this theory, then, home real realities exist, or we must still use special language when talking about somebody who exists at a distant time just as we would use special language when talking about something far away, the very words near, near, far, above, below, and such are directly comparable to phrases such as in the past, a minute ago, and so on. Endurantism and Putumantism The positions on the persistence of objects are somewhat similar. An endorotist holds that for an object to persist through time is for it to exist completely at different times, each instance of existence we can regard as somehow separate from previous and future instances, or still numerically identical with them. A Purdurantist, on the other hand, holds that for a thing to exist through time is for it to exist as a continuous reality, and that when we consider the thing as a whole we must consider an aggregate of all its temporal parts or instances of existing. Endurantism is seen as the conventional view and flows out of our pre-philosophical ideas. When I talk to somebody I think I am talking to that person as a complete object, and not just a part of a cross-temporal being, but Purdurantists have attacked this position. An example of a Purdurantist is David Lewis. 
One argument perturbantists use to state the superiority of our view is that perdurantism is able to take account of change in objects. The relations between these two questions mean that our Nihoral Prisantists are also Endurantists and Eternalists are also Perdurantists, and vice versa, but this is not a necessary connection and it is possible to claim, for instance, that time's passage indicates a series of ordered realities, but that objects within these realities somehow exist outside of the reality as a whole, even with the realities as wholes are not related. However, such positions are rarely adopted, and also called knowledge laws at correct times in wisdom apply directly. Jesus Christ is human imagination, allowing all release and empty vessel filled with real worth. The metaphysical theatre is brought to you by Anchor FM Podcasting Application for Mobile, free on Google Play. back you are way too deep into the life-giving depth of mind here on the metaphysical theatre anchor fm podcast free on google play philosophy of space and time philosophy of space and time is the branch of philosophy concerned with the issues surrounding the ontology epistemology and character of space and time while such ideas have been central to philosophy from its inception, the philosophy of space and time was both an inspiration for an essential aspect of early analytic philosophy. The subject focuses on a number of basic issues, including whether time and space exist independently of the mind, whether they exist independently of one another, not accounts for time's apparently directional flow, whether times other than the present moment exist, and questions about the nature of identity, particularly the nature of identity over time. Ancient and Medieval Views the earliest recorded Western philosophy of time was expounded by the ancient Egyptian thinker Tadp, c. 2, 6, 5, or 2, 6, or, or BC, who said, Follow your desires as long as you live, and do not perform more than is ordered, do not lessen the time of follow and desire, for the wasting of time is an abomination to the spirit. 11th maxim of Tartup the Vedas, the earliest texts on Indian philosophy and Hindu philosophy, dating back to the late 2nd millennium BC, describe ancient Hindu cosmology, in which the universe goes through repeated cycles of creation, destruction, and rebirth, with each cycle lasting for a million, three hundred and twenty thousand, years. Ancient Greek philosophers, including Parmenides and Heraclitus, wrote essays on the nature of time. Incas regarded space and time as a single concept, named Pekka, Kudwuchira, Pekka, Enora, Pekka. Plato, in the Timus, identified time with the period of motion of the heavenly bodies, and spaces that in which things come to be. Aristotle, in book the fourth of his physics, defined time as the number of changes with respect to before and after, and the place of an object as the innermost motionless boundary of that which surrounds it. In Book 11 of St. Augustine's Confessions, he ruminates on the nature of time, asking, What then is time? If no one asks me, I know. If I wish to explain it to one that asks, I know not. He goes on to comment on the difficulty of thinking about time, pointing out the inaccuracy of common speech. For but few things are there of which we speak properly. Of most things we speak improperly, still the things intended are understood. 
but Augustine presented the first philosophical argument for the reality of creation against Aristotle in the context of his discussion of time, saying that knowledge of time depends on the knowledge of the movement of things, and therefore time cannot be wherever an all creatures to measure its passing. In contrast to ancient Greek philosophers who believed that the universe had an infinite past with no beginning, medieval philosophers and theologians developed the concept of the universe having a finite past with a beginning, now known as temporal finitism. The Christian philosopher John Philippoulos presented early arguments adopted by later Christian philosophers and theologians of the forum argument from the impossibility of the existence of an actual infinite, which states, an actual infinite cannot exist. An infinite temporal regress of events is an actual infinite. An infinite temporal regress of events cannot exist. In the early 11th century, the Muslim physicist Ibn al-Hatham, Alison R. Lazen, discussed space perception and its epistemological implications in his book of Optics, 1021. He also rejected Aristotle's definition of Tapor, physics the fourth, by way of geometric demonstrations and defined places on mathematical spatial extension. His experimental proof of the intra-omission model of vision led to changes in the understanding of the visual perception space, contrary to the previous emission theory of vision supported by Euclid and Ptolemy. In tying the visual perception space to prior bodily experience, Ellison unequivocally rejected the intuitiveness of spatial perception and, therefore, the autonomy of vision. Without tangible notions of distance and size for correlation, sight can tell us next to nothing about such things. Realism and Anti-Realism A tradition at realist position in ontology is that time and space of existence apart from the human mind. Idealists, by contrast, deny or doubt the existence of objects independent of the mind. Some anti-realists, whose ontological position is that objects outside the mind do exist, nevertheless doubt the independent existence of time and space. In 1781, Immanuel Kant published The Critique of Pure Reason, one of the most influential works in the history of the philosophy of space and time. He describes time as an a priori notion that, together or with other a priori notions such as space, allows us to comprehend sense experience. Kant denies that either space or time are substance, entities in themselves, or learned by experience. He holds, rather, that both are elements of a systematic framework we use to structure our experience. Spatial measurements are used to quantify how far apart objects are, and temporal measurements are used to quantitatively compare the interval between, or duration of, events. Although space and time are held to be transcendentally ideal in this sense, they are also empirically real that is, not mere illusions. Idealist writers, such as J.M.E. McTaggart in The Unreality of Time, have argued that time is an illusion, see also the flow of time, below. The writers discussed here for the most part realists in this regard. For instance, Gottfried Leibniz held that his menops existed, at least independently of the mind of the observer. Absolutism and relationalism Leibniz and Newton. The great debate between defining notions of space and time as real objects themselves, absolute, or mere orderings upon actual objects, relational, began between physicists Isaac Newton, via his sportsman, Samuel Clark, and Gottfried Leibniz in the papers of the Leibniz-Clark correspondence. 
arguing against the absolutist position, Leibniz offers a number of thought experiments with the purpose of showing that there is contradiction in assuming the existence of facts such as absolute location and velocity. These arguments trade heavily on two principles central to his philosophy, the principle of sufficient reason and the identity of indiscernibles. The principle of sufficient reason holds that for every fact there is a reason that is sufficient to explain what and why it is the way it is and not otherwise. The identity of indiscernibles states that if there is no way of telling two entities apart, then they are one and the same thing. The example Leibniz uses involves two proposed universes situated in absolute space. The only discernible difference between them is that the latter is positioned five feet to the left of the first. The example is only possible if such a thing as absolute space exists. Such a situation, however, is not possible, according to Leibniz, for if it were, a universe's position in absolute space would have no sufficient reason, as it might very well have been anywhere else. Therefore, it contradicts the principle of sufficient reason, and there could exist two distinct universes that were in always indiscernible, thus contradicting the identity of indiscernibles. Standing out in Clark's and Newton's response to Leibniz's arguments is the bucket argument. Water in a bucket, hung from a rope and set to spin, will start with a flat surface. As the water begins to spin in the bucket, the surface of the water will become concave. If the bucket is tucked, the water will continue to spin, and while the spin continues, the surface will remain concave. The concave surface is apparently not the result of the interaction of the bucket and the water, since the surface is flat when the bucket first starts to spin, it becomes concave as the water starts to spin, and it remains concave as the bucket starts. In this response, Clark argues for the necessity of the existence of absolute space to account for a phenomena like rotation and acceleration that cannot be accounted for on a purely relationalist account. Clark argues that since the curvature of the water occurs in the rotating bucket as well as in the stationary bucket containing spinning water, it could only be explained by stating that the water is rotating in relation to the presence of some third thing absolute space. Leibniz describes a space that exists only as a relation between objects, and which has no existence apart from the existence of those objects. Motion exists only as a relation between those objects. Newtonian space provided the absolute frame of reference within which objects can have motion. In Newton's system, the frame of reference exists independently of the objects contained within it. These objects can be described as moving in relation to space itself. For many centuries, the evidence of a concave water surface held authority. Mark. Another important figure in this debate is 19th century physicist Ernst Mark. While he did not deny the existence of phenomena like that seen in the bucket argument, he still denied the absolutist conclusion by offering a different answer as to what the bucket was rotating in relation to. The fixed stars. Mark suggested that thought experiments like the bucket argument are problematic. If we were to imagine a universe that only contains a bucket, on Newton's account, this bucket could be set to spin relative to absolute space, and the water it contained would for any characteristic concave surface. But in the absence of anything else in the universe, it would be difficult to confirm that the bucket was indeed spinning. It seems equally possible that the surface of the water in the bucket would remain flat. 
Mac argued that, in effect, the water experiment in an otherwise empty universe would remain flat. But if another object were introduced into this universe, perhaps a distant star, there would now be something relative to which the bucket could be seen as rotating. The water inside the bucket could possibly have a slight curve. To account for the curve that we observe, an increase in the number of objects in the universe also increases the curvature in the water. Mac argued that the momentum of an object, whether angular or linear, exists as a result of the sum of the effects of other objects in the universe, Mac's principle. Einstein, Albert Einstein proposed that the laws of physics should be based on the principle of relativity. This principle holds that the rules of physics must be the same for all observers, regardless of the frame of reference that is used, and that light propagates at the same speed in all reference frames. This theory was motivated by Maxwell's equations, which show that electromagnetic waves propagate in a vacuum of the speed of light. However, Maxwell's equations give no indication what this speed is relative to. Prior to Einstein, it was thought that this speed was relative to a fixed medium, called the luminifer theory. In contrast, the theory of special relativity postulates that light propagates at the speed of light in all inertial frames, and examines the implications of this postulate. All attempts to measure any speed relative to this ether failed, which can be seen as a confirmation of Einstein's postulate that light propagates at the same speed in all reference frames. Special relativity is a formalization of the principle of relativity that does not contain a privileged inertial frame of reference, such as the luminifer ether or absolute space, from which Einstein inferred that no such frame exists. Einstein generalized relativity to frames of reference that were non-inertial. He achieved this by positing the equivalence principle, which states that the force felt by an observer in a given gravitational field and that felt by an observer in an accelerating frame of reference are indistinguishable. This led to the conclusion that the mass of an object warps the geometry of the space-time surrounding it, as described in Einstein's field equations. In classical physics, an inertial reference frame is one in which an object that experiences no forces does not accelerate. In general relativity, an inertial frame of reference is one that is following a geodesic of spacetime. An object that moves against a geodesic experiences a force. An object in free fall does not experience a force, because it is following a geodesic. An object standing on the Earth however, will experience a force, as it is being held against the geodesic by the surface of the planet. In light of this, the bucket of water rotating in empty space will experience a force, because it rotates with respect to the geodesic. The water will become concave, not because it is rotating with respect to the distant stars, but because it is rotating with respect to the geodesic. Einstein partially advocates Mach's principle in the distant stars explain inertia, because they provide the gravitational field against which acceleration and inertia occur. But contrary to Leibniz's account, this warped space-time is as integral a part of an object as a other defining characteristics, such as volume and mass. If one holds, contrary to idealist beliefs, that objects exist independently of the mind, it seems that relativistics commits them to also hold that space and temporality have exactly the same type of independent existence. Conventionalism.
The position of conventionalism states that there is no effect of the matter as to the geometry of space and time, but that it is decided by convention. The first proponent of such a view, Henry Pankett, reacting to the creation of the new non-Euclidean geometry, argued that which geometry applied to a space was decided by convention, since different geometries will describe a set of objects equally well, based on considerations from his sphere world. This view was developed and updated to include considerations from relativistic physics by Hans Reichenbach. Reichenbach's conventionalism, applying to space and time, focuses around the idea of coordinative definition. Coordinative definition has two major features. The first has to do with coordinating units of length with certain physical objects. This is motivated by the fact that we can never directly apprehend length. Instead we must choose some physical object, say the Standard and Territory Bureau of International Depths et Messrs, International Bureau of Weights and Measures, or the wavelength of cadmium to stand in as our unit of length. The second feature deals with separated objects. Although we can, presumably, directly test the equality of length of two measuring rods when they are next to one another, we cannot find out as much for two rods distant from one another. Even supposing that two rods, whenever brought near to one another, are seen to be equal in length, we are not justified in stating that they are always equal in length. This impossibility undermines our ability to decide the equality of length of two distant objects. Sameness of length, to the contrary, must be said by definition. Such a use of coordinative definition is, in effect, on Reichenbach's conventionalism, in the general theory of relativity where light is assumed, that is not discovered, to mark out equal distances in equal times. After this setting of coordinative definition, however, the geometry of space-time is set, as in the absolutism-slash-relationalism debate, contemporary philosophy is still in disagreement as to the correctness of the conventionalist doctrine structure of space-time. Building from a mix of insights from the historical debates of absolutism and conventionalism as well as reflecting on the import of the technical apparatus of the general theory of relativity, details as to the structure of space-time have made up a large proportion of discussion within the philosophy of space and time, as well as the philosophy of physics. The following is a short list of topics. Relativity of simultaneity. According to special relativity each point in the universe can have a different set of events that compose its present instant. This has been used in the Rupchadik-Potram argument to demonstrate that relativity predicts a black universe in which events are fixed in four dimensions. Invariance versus covariance, bringing to bear the lessons of the absolutism-slash-relationalism debate with the powerful mathematical tools invented in the 19th and 20th century, Michael Friedman draws a distinction between invariance upon mathematical transformation and covariance upon transformation. Invariance, or symmetry, applies to objects, that is the symmetry group of a space-time theory designates what features of objects are invariant, or absolute, and which are dynamical, or variable. Covariance applies to formulations of theories, that is the covariance group designates in which range of coordinate systems the laws of physics hold. This distinction can be illustrated by revisiting Leibniz's thought experiment, in which the universe is shifted over 5 feet. In this example the position of an object is seen not to be a property of that object, that is location is not invariant. 
Similarly, the covariance group for a classical mechanics would be any coordinate systems that are obtained from one another by shifts in position as well as other translations allowed by a Galilean transformation. In the classical case, the invariance, or asymmetry, group and the covariance group coincide, but, interestingly enough, they part ways in relativistic physics. The symmetry group of the general theory of relativity includes all different iterable transformations, that is, all properties of an object are dynamical, in other words there are no absolute objects. The formulations of the general theory of relativity, unlike those of classical mechanics, do not share a standard, that is, there is no single formulation paired with transformations. As such the covariance group of the general theory of relativity is just the covariance group of every theory. Historical frameworks. A further application of the immaterial mathematical methods, in league with the idea of invariance and covariance groups, is to try to interpret historical views of space and time in modern mathematical language. In these translations, a theory of space and time is seen as a manifold paired with vector spaces, the more vector spaces the more effects there are about objects in the theory. The historical development of space-time theories is generally seen to start from a position where many facts about objects are incorporated in the theory, and as history progresses, more and more structure is removed. For example, Aristotelian space and time has both absolute position and special places, such as the center of the cosmos, and the circumference. Newtonian space and time has absolute position and is Galilean invariant, but does not have special positions. Also, with the general theory of relativity, the traditional debate between absolutism and relationalism has been shifted to whether a space-time is a substance, since the general theory of relativity largely rules out the existence of, for instance, absolute positions. One powerful argument against space-time substantivalism offered by Jan Irman is known as the Hall argument. This is a technical mathematical argument that can be paraphrased as follows. Define a function d as the identity function over all elements over the manifold n, excepting a small neighborhood h belonging to m over h d comes to differ from identity by a smoother function. With use of this function d, we can construct two mathematical models, where the second is generated by applying d to proper elements of the first, such that the two models are identical prior to the time t equals zero, where t is a time function created by a foliation space-time, but diff after t equals zero. These considerations show that, since substantivalism allows the construction holds, that the universe must, on that view, being deterministic. Which, Irman argues, is a case against substantivalism, as the case between determinism or indeterminism should be a question of physics, not of our commitment to substantivalism. Direction time. The problem of the direction time arises directly from two contradictory facts. Firstly, the fundamental physical laws are time-reversal invariant. If a cinematographic film were taken of any process described by means of the aforementioned laws and then played backwards, it would still portray a physically possible process. Secondly, our experience of time, at the macroscopic level, is not time-reversal invariant. Glasses can fall and break, but shards of glass cannot reassemble and fly up onto tables. We have memories of the past, and none of the future. We feel we can't change the past but can influence the future. Causation solution. 
One solution to this problem takes a metaphysical view, in which the direction of time follows from an asymmetry of causation. We know more about the past, because the elements of the past are causes for the effect that is our perception. We feel we can't affect the past and can affect the future, because we can't affect the past and can affect the future. There are two main objections to this view. First is the problem of distinguishing the cause from the effect in a non-arbitrary way. The use of causation in constructing a temporal ordering could easily become circular. The second problem with this view is its explanatory power. While the causation account, if successful, may account for a sometime asymmetric phenomena like perception and action, it does not account for many others. However, asymmetry of causation can be observed in a non-arbitrary way which is not metaphysical in the case of a human hand dropping a cup of water which smashes into fragments on a hard floor spilling the liquid. In this order, the causes of the resultant pattern of cup fragments and water spill is easily attributable in terms of the trajectory of the cup, irregularities in its structural angle of its impact on the flora, etc. However, applying the same event in reverse, it is difficult to explain why the various pieces of the cup should fly up into the human hand and reassemble precisely into the shape of a cup, or why the water should position itself entirely within the cup. The causes of the resultant structure and shape of the cup and the encapsulation of the water by the hand within the cup are not easily attributable, as neither hand nor flora can achieve such formations of the cup or water. This asymmetry is perceivable on account of two features. I, the relationship between the agent capacities of the human hand, that is, what it is and is not capable of and what it is for, and non-animal agency, that is, what flowers are and are not capable of and what they are for, and E, that the pieces of cup came to possess exactly the nature and number of those of a cup before the form. In short, such asymmetry is attributable to the relationship between temporal direction on the one hand and the implications of form and functional capacity on the other. The application of these ideas of form and functional capacity only dictates temporal direction in relation to complex scenarios involving specific, non-metaphysical agency which is not merely dependent on human perception time. However, this last observation in itself is not sufficient to invalidate the implications of the example for the progressive nature of time in general. Through a more dynamic solution, the second major family of solutions to this problem, and by far the one that has generated the most literature, finds the existence of the direction of time as relating to the nature of thermodynamics. The answer from classical thermodynamics states that while our basic physical theory is, in fact, time reverse and symmetric, thermodynamics is not. In particular, the second law of thermodynamics states that the net entropy of a closed system never decreases, and this explains why we often see glass breaking, but not coming back together. But in statistical mechanics things become more complicated. On one hand, statistical mechanics is far superior to classical thermodynamics, in that thermodynamic behavior, such as glass breaking, can be explained by the fundamental laws of physics paired with a statistical postulate. But statistical mechanics, unlike classical thermodynamics, is time-reversal symmetric. The second law of thermodynamics, as it arises in statistical mechanics, merely states that it is overwhelmingly likely that net entropy will increase, but it is not an absolute law. 
Current thermodynamic solutions to the problem of the direction of time aim to find some further fact or feature of the laws of nature to account for this discrepancy. Laws solution. A third type of solution to the problem of the direction of time, although much less represented, argues that the laws are not time reversal symmetric. For example, certain processes in quantum mechanics relating to the weak nuclear force are not time reversible. Keeping in mind that when dealing with quantum mechanics, time reversibility comprises a more complex definition. But this type of solution is insufficient because 1. The time asymmetric phenomena in quantum mechanics are too few to account for the uniformity of macroscopic time asymmetry and 2. It relies on the assumption that quantum mechanics is the final or correct description of physical processes. One recent proponent of the law's solution is Tim Wobblin who argues that the fundamental laws of physics are laws of temporal evolution, see Wobblin 2007. However, elsewhere Morgan argues, the passage of time is an intrinsic asymmetry in the temporal structure of the world, it is the asymmetry that grounds the distinction between sequences that runs from past to future and sequences which run from future to past. Thus it is arguably difficult to assess whether a modeling is suggesting that the direction of time is a consequence of the laws or is itself primitive. Flow of time. The problem of the flow of time, as it has been treated in analytic philosophy, or is its beginning to a paper written by J.M.E. McTaggart. In this paper McTaggart proposes two temporal series. The first series, which means to account for our intuitions about temporal becoming, or the moving now, is called the A-series. The A-series orders events according to their being in the past, present or future, simpliciter and in comparison to each other. The V-series eliminates all reference to the present and the associated temporal modalities of past and future, and orders all events by the temporal relations earlier than and later than. McTaggart, in his paper The Unreality of Time, argues that time is unreal since A, the A-series is inconsistent and B, the V-series alone cannot account for the nature of time as the A-series describes an essential feature of it. Building from this framework, two camps of solution have been offered. The first, the atheorist solution, takes becoming as the central feature of time, and tries to construct the B-series from the A-series by offering an account of how the facts come to be out of effects. The second camp, the B-theorist solution, takes as decisive McTaggart's arguments against the A-series and tries to construct the A-series out of the B-series, for example, by temporal indexicals, dualities. Quantum field theory models have shown that it is possible for theories in two different space-time backgrounds, like AD-CFTRT duality, to be equivalent. Presentism and Eternalism According to presentism, time is an ordering of various realities. At a certain time some things exist and others do not. This is the only reality we can deal with and we cannot, for example, say that Homer exists, because at the present time he does not. An eternalist, on the other hand, holds that time is a dimension reality on a par with the three spatial dimensions, and hence that all things past, present, and future can be said to be just as real as things in the present. According to this theory, then, home real realities exist, or we must still use special language when talking about somebody who exists at a distant time just as we would use special language when talking about something far away, the very words near, near, far, above, below, and such are directly comparable to phrases such as in the past, a minute ago, and so on. 
endurantism and pudurantism, the positions on the persistence of objects are somewhat similar. An endurantist holds that for an object to persist through time is for it to exist completely at different times, each instance of existence we can regard as somehow separate from previous and future instances, or still numerically identical with them. A Purdurantist, on the other hand, holds that for a thing to exist through time is for it to exist as a continuous reality, and that when we consider the thing as a whole we must consider an aggregate of all its temporal parts or instances of existing. Endurantism is seen as the conventional view and flows out of our pre-philosophical ideas. When I talk to somebody I think I am talking to that person as a complete object, and not just a part of a cross-temporal being, but Purdurantists have attacked this position. An example of a Purdurantist is David Lewis. One argument Purdurantists use to state the superiority of their view is that Purdurantism is able to take account of change in objects. The relations between these two questions mean that only whole Purdurantists are also Endurantists and Eternalists are also Purdurantists, and vice versa, but this is not a necessary connection and it is possible to claim, for instance, that time's passage indicates a series of ordered realities, but that objects within these realities somehow exist outside of the reality as a whole, even though the realities as wholes are not related. However, such positions are rarely adopted, and also called knowledge laws at correct times in wisdom apply directly. Jesus Christ is human imagination, allowing all release and empty vessel filled with real worth. The metaphysical theatre is brought to you by Anchor FM podcasting application for mobile, free on Google Play. Metaphysical Wit Explanation Series. Today on the podcast we explore teleology. Plato and Aristotle, depicted here in the School of Athens, both developed philosophical arguments addressing the universe's apparent order, logos, teleology or finality is a reason or explanation for something in function of its end, purpose or goal. It is derived from two Greek words, telos, and goal, purpose, and logos, reason, explanation. A purpose that is imposed by human use, such as that of the fork, is called extrinsic. Natural teleology, common in classical philosophy but controversial today, contends that natural entities also have intrinsic purposes, irrespective of human use or opinion. For instance, Aristotle claimed that an acorn's intrinsic telos is to become a fully grown oak tree. The ancient atomists rejected the notion of natural teleology. Teleological accounts of non-personal or non-human nature were explored and often endorsed in ancient and medieval philosophies, but fell into disfavor during the modern era, 1600-1900. In the late 18th century, Immanuel Kant used the concept of telos as a regulated principle in his critique of judgment. Teleology was also fundamental to the speculative philosophy of Georg Hegel. Contemporary philosophers and scientists are still discussing whether teleological talk is useful or accurate in doing modern philosophy and science. For instance, in 2012, Thomas Nagel proposed an Darwinian account of evolution that incorporates impersonal, natural teleological laws to explain the existence of life, consciousness, rationality, and objective value. Etymology. The word teleology builds on the Greek, telos, root, and purpose, and logia, a branch of learning. The German philosopher Christian von Wolff coined the term, in the Latin form teleologia, in 1728 in his work Philosophia Rationalis, Sidlogica. Historical overview. In Western philosophy, the term and concept of teleology originated in the writings of Plato and Aristotle. Aristotle's four causes give special place to each thing's telos or final cause. 
In this, he followed Plato in seeing purpose in both human and subhuman nature. Platonic. In the Feta, Plato through Socrates argues that true explanations for any given physical phenomenon must be teleological. He bemoans those who fail to distinguish between a thing's necessary and sufficient causes, which he identifies respectively as material and final causes. Imagine not being able to distinguish the real cause from that without which the cause would not be able to act as a cause. It is what the majority appear to do, like people groping in the dark. They call it a cause, thus giving it a name that does not belong to it. That is why one man surrounds the earth with a vortex to make the heavens keep it in place, another makes the air supported like a white lid. As for their capacity of being in the best place they could be at this very time, this they do not look for, nor do they believe it to have any divine force, but they believe that they will sometime discover a stronger and more immortal atlas to hold everything together more, and they do not believe that the truly good abiding binds and holds them together. Plato, Plato here argues that, for instance, the materials that compose a body are necessary conditions for its moving or acting in a certain way, but that these materials cannot be the sufficient condition for its moving or acting as it does. For example, given in Feta 98, if Socrates is sitting in an Athenian prison, the elasticity of his tangents is what allows him to be sitting, and so a physical description of his tangents can be listed as necessary conditions or auxiliary causes of his act of sitting. However, these are only necessary conditions of Socrates sitting. To give a physical description of Socrates' body is to say that Socrates is sitting, but it does not give us any idea why it came to be that he was sitting in the first place. To say why he was sitting and not not sitting, we have to explain what it is about his sitting that is good, for all things brought about, that is, all products of actions, are brought about because the actor saw some good in them. Thus, to give an explanation of something is to determine what about it is good. Its goodness is its actual cause its purpose, telos or reason for which Timus, Aristotelian. Similarly, Aristotle argued that Democritus was wrong to attempt to reduce all things to mere necessity, because doing so neglects the aim, order, and final cause, which brings about these necessary conditions. Democritus, however, neglecting the final cause, reduces to necessity all the operations of nature. Now they are necessary, it is true, but yet they are for a final cause and for the sake of what is best in each case. Thus nothing prevents the teeth from being formed and being shut in this way, but it is not on account of these causes, but on account of the end. Aristotle, Generation of Animals V8, in the physics Aristotle rejected Plato's assumption that the universe was created by an intelligent designer using eternal forms as his model. For Aristotle, naturals are produced by nature's principles of change internal to living things, and natures, Aristotle argued, do not deliberate. It is absurd to suppose that ends are not present in nature because we do not see an agent deliberating. Aristotle, physics physics where natures are contrasted with intelligence these Plutonic and Aristotelian arguments ran counter to those presented earlier by Democritus and later by Lucretus, both of whom were supporters of what is now often called incidentalism. Nothing in the body is made in order that we may use it. What happens to exist is the cause of its use. Lucretus, de rerum netera, on the nature of things, disfavor. Since the Novum Organum of Francis Bacon, technological explanations in physical science tend to be deliberately avoided in favor of focus on material and efficient explanations. Final and formal causation came to be viewed as false or too subjective. Some disciplines, in particular within evolutionary biology, continue to use language that appears teleological when they describe natural tendencies towards certain end conditions. Citation needed while some argue that these arguments can be rephrased in non-teleological forms, others who hold that teleological language cannot be expunged from descriptions in the life sciences. Economics. Teleology played a crucial role in the work of Ludwig Bohlen, Mises especially in the development of the science of praxeology. More specifically he believed that human action, that is purposeful behavior, is teleological based on the presupposition that an individual's action is governed or caused by the existence of their chosen ends. 
or in other words an individual selects what they believe to be the most appropriate means to achieve a sought-after goal or end. Mises however also stressed that teleology with respect to human action was by no means independent of causality as he states no action can be devised and ventured upon without definite ideas about the relation of cause and effect. Teleology presupposes causality, modern and postmodern philosophy. Historically, teleology may be identified with the philosophical tradition of Aristotelianism. The rationale of teleology was explored by Immanuel Kant in his critique of judgment and, again, made central to speculative philosophy by Hegelund and the various Neo-Hegelian schools, proposing a history of our species some consider to be at variance with Darwin, as well as with the dialectical materialism of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, and with what is now called analytic philosophy. The point of departure is not so much formal logic and scientific fact but identity. In Hegel's terminology, objective spirit. Individual human consciousness, in the process of reaching for autonomy and freedom, has no choice but to deal with an obvious reality. The collective identities, such as the multiplicity of worldviews, ethnic, cultural and national identities, that divide the human race and set, and always have set, different groups in violent conflict with each other. Hegel conceived of the totality of mutually antagonistic worldviews and life forms in history as being goal-driven, that is, oriented towards an endpoint in history. The objective contradiction of subject and object would eventually subvert into a form of life that leaves violent conflict behind. This goal-oriented, technological notion of the historical process as a whole is present in a variety of 20th century authors, although its prominence declined drastically after the Second World War. In contrast, technological-based grand narratives are eschewed by the postmodern attitude and teleology may be viewed as rective, exclusionary and harmful to those whose stories are diminished or overlooked. Against this postmodern position, Alasdair MacIntyre has argued that a narrative understanding of oneself, of one's capacity as an independent reasoner, one's dependence on others and on the social practices and traditions in which one participates, all tend towards an ultimate good of liberation. Social practices may themselves be understood as teleologically oriented to internal goods, for example, practices of philosophical and scientific inquiry are teleologically ordered to the elaboration of a true understanding of their objects. McIntyre's book After Virtue famously dismissed the naturalistic teleology of Aristotle's metaphysical biology, but he has cautiously moved from the book's account of a sociological teleology toward an exploration of what remains valid in a more traditional teleological naturalism. Ethics. Teleology informs the study of ethics. Business ethics. Business people commonly think in terms of purposeful actionizing, for example, management by objectives. Technological analysis of business ethics leads to consideration of the full range of stakeholders in any business decision, including the management, the staff, the customers, the shareholders, the country, humanity and the environment. Medical ethics. Teleology provides a moral basis for the professional ethics of medicine, as physicians are generally concerned with outcomes and must therefore know the telos of a given treatment paradigm. Consequentialism. The broad spectrum of consequentialist ethics, of which utilitarianism is a well-known example, focuses on the end result or consequences, with such principles as utilitarian philosopher John Stuart Mill's the greatest good for the greatest number, or the principle of utility. Hence this principle is teleological, but in a broader sense than is elsewhere understood in philosophy. In the classical notion, teleology is grounded in the inherent natures of things themselves, whereas in consequentialism, teleology is imposed on nature from outside by the human will. Consequentialist theories justify inherently what most people would call evil acts by their desirable outcomes, if the good of the outcome outweighs the bad of the act. So for example, a consequentialist theory would say it was acceptable to kill one person in order to save two or more other people. These theories may be summarized by the maxim the ends can justify the means. 
Consequentialism stands in contrast to the more classical notions of deontological ethics, such as Emil Kant's categorical imperative, and Aristotle's virtue ethics, although formulations of virtue ethics are also often consequentialist in derivation. In deontological ethics, the goodness or badness of individual acts is primary and the desirable larger goal is insufficient to justify bad acts committed on the way to the goal, even if the bad acts are relatively minor and the goal is major, like telling a small lie to prevent a war and save millions of lives. In requiring all constituent acts to be good, deontological ethics is much more rigid than consequentialism, which varies by circumstances. Practical ethics are usually a mix of the two. For example, Mill also relies on deontic maxims to guide practical behavior, but they must be justifiable by the principle of utility. Science. In modern science, explanations that rely on teleology are often, but not always, avoided, either because they are unnecessary or because whether they are true or false is thought to be beyond the ability of human perception and understanding to judge. But using teleology as an explanatory style, in particular with an evolutionary biology, is still controversial. Biology. Apparent teleology is a recurring issue in evolutionary biology, much to the consternation of some writers. Statements which imply that nature has goals, for example, where a species is said to do something in order to achieve survival, appear teleological, and therefore invalid. Usually, it is possible to rewrite such sentences to avoid the apparent teleology. Some biology courses have incorporated exercises requiring students to rephrase such sentences so that they do not read teleologically. Nevertheless, biologists still frequently write in a way which can be read as implying teleology even if that is not the intention. These issues have recently been discussed by John Rice. He argues that evolutionary biology can be purged of such teleology by rejecting the analogy of natural selection as a watchmaker. Other arguments against this analogy have also been promoted by writers such as Richard Dawkins. Some authors, like James Lennox, have argued that Darwin was a teleologist, while others like Michael Hisling described this claim as a myth promoted by misinterpretations of his discussions and emphasized the distinction between using teleological metaphors and being teleological. Biologist philosopher Francisco Ayala has argued that all statements about processes can be trivially translated into teleological statements, and vice versa, but that teleological statements are more explanatory and cannot be disposed of. Karen Neander has argued that the modern concept of biological function is dependent upon selection. So, for example, it is not possible to say that anything that simply winks into existence without going through a process of selection has functions. We decide whether an appendage has a function by analyzing the process of selection that lead to it. Therefore, any talk of functions that speak posterior to natural selection and function cannot be defined in the manner advocated by Rice and Dawkins. Ernst Mayer states that adaptiveness is an a posteriori result rather than an a priori goal-seeking. Various commentators view the teleological phrases used in modern evolutionary biology as a type of shorthand. For example, S.H.P. Montreal writes that the proper but cumbersome way of describing change by evolutionary adaptation may be substituted by shorter overtly teleological statements for the saga of saving space, but that this should not be taken to imply that evolution proceeds by anything other than from mutations arising by chance, with those that impart an advantage being retained by natural selection. J.B.S. Helton said, Teleology is like a mistress to a biologist. He cannot live without her, but he's unwilling to be seen with her in public. Cybernetics. Julian Bigelow, Arturo Rosenbluth, and Norbert Wiener have conceived of feedback mechanisms of lending a teleology to machinery. Wiener, a mathematician, coined the term cybernetics to denote the study of teleological mechanisms. Cybernetics is the study of the communication and control of regulatory feedback both in living beings and machines, and in combinations of the two. In the cybernetic classification presented in behavior, purpose and teleology, teleology is feedback controlled purpose. 
The classification system underlying cybernetics was criticized by Frank Anywell George, who cited the need for an external observability to the purposeful behavior in order to establish and validate the goal-seeking behavior. In this view, the purpose of observing and observed systems is respectively distinguished by the system's subjective autonomy and objective control. Teleonomy. In recent years, end-driven teleology has become contrasted with apparent teleology, that is teleonomy or process-driven systems. Like this mystery metaphysical theater anchored Petkos Anchor FM, 